Good morning. Um, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us this morning. Uh, fill our hearts with your love and your presence. Give us wisdom and discernment. Uh, may your angels join us to, to give glory to you. And we pray that you will send your, your healing agencies to those uh, who are struggling with illness, that you will restore them to us and to health, that they can be part of this uh, group that is trying to take the, the message of your character to the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and the title of the lesson this week is The Antichrist, The Antichrist, and it asks us to read 2nd Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. So I thought we should start by reading 2nd Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. So let's, uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn there, 2nd you know, Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, and we're going to just read that, and then there are, we're going to go from there in our discussion. It says, Concerning the coming of the Lord... Christ and our being gathered uh, to him, we ask you, brothers, do not become uh, easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day day of the Lord has already come. Notice the first uh, dynamic that's going on that Paul's dealing with here. He's telling the Thessalonians, hey, there's a group of people going around saying that I'm saying stuff I didn't say. Don't be unsettled by people claiming that they know what I'm teaching because they don't know. They're misrepresenting me. And I was going to say uh, in the lesson that uh, Graham used to have that problem all the time. Anyway, and then notice after he says, "Hey, don't don't be unsettled by supposed reports uh, about that we have taught something. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way." For the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself of everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe a lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Now, I wanted to start with the, with the focus of the title. We read, we read that. We will be reflecting back on this text throughout our lesson today. But let's do some history and just review and reflect how the Antichrist has been, been believed or taught about throughout history. And if, if you go to Wikipedia or any other uh, source, you can just find a lot of information about uh, who taught what about the Antichrist through time. So let's go through some of that. Polycarp, in the first century, taught, warned the Philippians that everyone who preaches false doctrine was an Antichrist. If you're teaching lies, you're Antichrist, according to Polycarp. Irenaeus, in the second century, wrote that the figure of the Antichrist was the recapitulation of apostasy and rebellion, and he used the 666 number to decode several possibilities uh, 
including Latinos, uh, which he uh, loosely applied to the Roman Empire. And in his exegesis of Daniel 7, he stated that the ten horns of the beast will be the Roman Empire divided into ten kingdoms at some future time. That was in the second century. Tertullian, 160 uh, to 220 AD, held that the Roman Empire was the restraining force uh, written about by Paul in 2 Thessalonians, the fall of, the Rome, of Rome and the disintegration into ten provinces of the Roman Empire into ten kingdoms were to make way for the Antichrist. So very early on in Christianity, they're identifying Rome as the restraining force, and then when it breaks up, it would, and, and they hadn't seen this yet. Unlike we're looking back, we can say, yeah, Rome broke up into ten kingdoms. That's cool. They're looking forward and saying it's going to break up into ten kingdoms. And in fact, it did. Um, so, uh, Cyril of uh, Jerusalem in the mid-4th century taught that the Antichrist will reign as the ruler of the world for three and a half years before he is killed by Christ right at the uh, end of the three and a half year reign, shortly before the second coming. John Chrysostom, uh, 347-407, warned against speculation and old wives' tales about the Antichrist, saying, Let us not therefore inquire into these things. He preached that by knowing Paul's description of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians, Christians would avoid deception. Do you know the description? Can you avoid deception from what we read earlier? We'll see as we go through. Jerome, 347 to 420, warned that those substituting false interpretations for the actual meaning of Scripture belong to the synagogue of Antichrist. He that is not of Christ is Antichrist, wrote Jerome. Uh, to Jerome, the power restraining, uh, the power restraining this mysterious iniquity was the Roman Empire. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, 354 to 430, wrote, It is uncertain in what temple the Antichrist shall sit, whether in, in that ruin of the temple which Solomon built or in the church. Now, how about Pope? Pope Gregory I wrote to Emperor Maurice in 597 AD. What do you think he said? Now, this is very good, actually. It says, Concerning the titles of bishops... I say with confidence that whoever calls or desires to call himself universal priest in self-exaltation of himself is a precursor of the Antichrist. Wow. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Archbishop Arnulf of Reims disagreed with the policies and morals of Pope John XV. He expressed his views while presiding over the Council of Reims in AD 991. Arnulf accused John XV of being the Antichrist, while he also, using the Second Thessalonians passage, man of sin, applied this uh, to, the, uh, to that pope. Cardinal Benno wrote... Uh, Long descriptions of abuses committed by Pope Gregory VII, including necromancy, torture of former friend upon a bed of nails, commissioning of an attempted assassinations, uh, execution without trial, unjust excommunications, uh, doubting the real presence of the Eucharist and even burning it. And Benno held that Gregory VII was either a member of Antichrist or Antichrist himself. Um, Ebelhard II von Trucius, uh, pr Prince Archbishop of Salzburg in 1241 at the Council of Regensburg, denounced Pope Gregory IX as that man of perdition whom thou call Antichrist, uh, who uh, is extravagant uh, boasting and boasting. So, Oh, by the way, um, the Archbishop Arnulf of Reims, when he uh, attributed uh, Pope John um, Pope John the Fifteenth in 991 as being the Antichrist. That was the first recorded uh, uh, time that a pope was called Antichrist. So 991. Um, many Protestant reformers, including Martin Luther, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, uh, 
John Thomas, John Knox, and Cotton Mather identified Roman papacy as the Antichrist. In calling the Pope Antichrist, the early Lutherans stood in tradition that reached back to the 11th century. Not only uh, dissidents and heretics, but even saints had called the bishops of Rome the Antichrist when they wished to castigate his abuse of power. William Tyndale, an English Protestant reformer, held that while the Roman Catholic realms of that age were the empire of Antichrist, any religious organization that distorted the doctrine of the Old New Testaments also showed the work of Antichrist. In his treatise, Parable of the Wicked Mammon, he expressed, he expressly rejected, now this is important, he especially rejected the established church teaching that looked to the future for an Antichrist to rise up, and he taught that Antichrist is a present spiritual force that will be with us until the end of the age. Now, futurism, you ever heard of futurism? Okay, futurism, a product of the counter-reformation. What's the counter-reformation? Well, the Reformation was when Martin Luther and the Reformers began uh, calling to account the, what they felt were abuses in the Catholic Church, and then they, the Protestant denominations began breaking away from Catholicism. The Catholic uh, organization countered that Reformation. So this is the counter-Reformation. This is their answer to the Reformation. So when the counter-Reformation was advanced in the 16th century, uh, in response to the Reformers calling the papacy the Antichrist, they needed to answer that, so the Counter-Reformation, Francisco Ribera, a Jesuit priest, developed the theory, and St. Bellarmine codified this view of a personal Antichrist to come just before the end of the world and to be accepted by the Jews and enthroned in the temple in Jerusalem, thus endeavoring to dispose of the exposition which saw Antichrist in the Pope. Most Premillennial dispensationalists now accept Bellarmine's interpretation in modified form. Widespread Protestant identification of the papacy as Antichrist persisted in the United States until the 19th century, when the Schofield Reference Bible was published by Cyrus Schofield. The commentary, this commentary promoted futurism, causing a decline in the Protestant identification of the papacy as Antichrist. In fact, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is really the only remaining Protestant church that really holds to the um, papacy as representing Antichrist power. All the, other, most, all the other Protestant churches that I know have accepted Schofield's view and moved into futurism. And thus, if you've read books like um, the Left Behind series, the Left Behind series, the entire events in that novel series is based on this futuristic view of an Antichrist to come. Some U.S. futurists hold that sometime prior to the expected return of Jesus, there will be a period of great tribulation, during which the Antichrist, indwelt and controlled by Satan, will attempt to win supporters with false peace, supernatural and supernatural signs. He will silence all that defy him by refusing to receive his mark on their right hands or foreheads, very literally taught. If you read those books, there's these marks that people get. Um, this uh, mark will be required to legally partake in end-time economic system. Futurists believe that the Antichrist will be assassinated halfway through the tribulation uh, and being revived by an indwelt Satan. So, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, uh, teach that Antichrist is anyone or anything that counterfeits the true gospel or plan of salvation and that openly or secretly is set up in opposition to Christ. The great Antichrist is Lucifer, but he has many assistants, both as spirit beings and as mortals. The Islamic view. Mazi Ad Dajjal, the deceiving Messiah, is an evil figure in Islamic eschatology. He is to appear pretending to be God at a time in the future before the resurrection and the judgment. He will travel around the globe, entering every city except Mecca and Medina, obliging people to believe uh, in him as God. Then Esau, Jesus, will descend, 
from the sky to the white lighthouse in eastern Damascus, Syria, placing his hands on the back of two angels at the, t- uh, at the time. This will happen um, uh, at the time that the, uh, that the uh, evil figure, the, their Antichrist, uh, appears, and Jesus will kill him with a spear. And then uh, another form of Islam, Ahmadiyya, Ahmadiyya teaches uh, the interpretation of the prophecies regarding the appearance of the Antichrist and Gog and Magog in Islam as foretelling the emergence of two branches or aspects of the same turmoil and trial that is to be faced by Islam in the latter days, both emerging from Christianity or Christian nations. Uh, its Antichrist aspect relates to the deception and perversion of religious beliefs while its aspects um, to do with disturbance in the realms of politics and shattering the world peace has been called Gog and Magog. Uh, this uh, view considers the widespread Christian missionary activity that was aggressively active in the 18th and 19th century as being part of the prophesied Antichrist and Gog and Magog emerging in modern times. The emergence of the Soviet Union and the United States as superpowers and the conflict between the two nations, uh, rivalry between communism and capitalism, are seen as having occurred in accordance with certain prophecies regarding Gog and Magog. So that's kind of review through history of how the, uh, the Antichrist power has been interpreted by various people. We, we're still here. We still have this issue of Antichrist. We have this description we read in Thessalonians. Um, what do you think and who do you think? How do you understand Antichrist? Yes. It is first of all Satan himself and whoever he uses in this world in order to accomplish his intentions. Okay, so anybody disagree with that? First and foremost Satan and then anybody he uses. Well, let's go back and start looking at some of the, some of the things in our text. It started out with the man of lawlessness. It's called him the man of lawlessness. What do you understand that to mean? Maybe I should ask, what law? He's out of harmony with God. Out of harmony with God, she says. Can you, be, can you extrapolate on that? Can you make that more clear for people who may not, may not maybe somebody who's Muslim or somebody uh, who's Mormon or somebody from a, from a different background, he's a man of lawlessness, out of harmony with God. What does that mean? How does out of harmony with God have to do with lawlessness? You mean doesn't keep his rules? Breaks the Ten Commandments? Worships on the wrong day? What do we mean? Should we be able to tell? One who promotes self. Okay, one who promotes self. How does, that, what, how does promoting self have to connect with lawlessness? I'm not disagreeing with you. I just want us to connect the dots. Because make it tight. The opposite is love. love. Okay. And he doesn't exhibit true love. She said because the opposite is love and he doesn't exhibit true love. Okay, and how does that connect with lawlessness? God's law is the law of love. Okay, so God's law is the law of love, and that law is what kind of law? It's a natural law. It's a protocol in which life is built. Uh, and the man of lawlessness, what does it say in, in 1 John about sin is? Sin is. That's King James. The actual Greek is antinomia, which anti against, nomia, the law. So most of the modern versions say sin is lawlessness. Same word, sin is lawlessness. So this sometimes meant they call him the man, the, the, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, the man of perdition. You've heard this also described in, in the Second Thessalonian passage. So lawlessness is the same as sin. 
Lawlessness, is, any, anybody disagree with that? And God's law is, originates where? So it's what you said, it's, it's, it's his character of God, so it's out of harmony with God. And, and what I'm trying to help us establish is that, that the man of sin is not simply uh, 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 disobeying a codified set of rules. You see, some people teach that it's all about a particular day of what week you worship on. I would ask you, those who put Christ on the cross wanted him down by sunset to achieve what? To worship on Sunday, right? No. No. No, they, were, they had the right day. But were they, were they, in the view of what we're talking here, law-abiding or lawless? They were lawless. They were lawless. They were outside the law. They were not loving Christ. They were not sacrificing self. They were not living to give for the benefit of others. This is lawlessness outside God's protocols for life. So this lawlessness might be manifest by replacing God's law of love, the design for life, by an imposed human law construct. Might that be part of what happens? Well, let's keep that in mind as we go through. Daniel describes a little horn power that grew great, but not by its own power. Where does the little horn power get its power? From the dragon. That's exactly right. The, the Revelation tells us that this power comes from the dragon. The little horn, and so the question is now, where does, what is the power of the little horn and the power of the dragon? What's its power? Lies. Both of you, exactly. Lies, falsehood. It says in um, John um, 8.44 and other places uh, that Satan is the father of lies. And in the, in the Daniel text, it says the little horn throws truth to the ground and causes deceit. Another way of saying lies. So you notice that the, that the, the Satan, father of lies, and little horn are practicing the same methods, lying and deceiving. It says in Hebrews 2.14 that Christ, by his death, destroyed him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Can anybody connect for me how lies and the power of death are connected? Can anybody walk that through for me? How do lies result in death? Yes. Um, in John 17, it says that knowing God, truly knowing God, is eternal life. So the opposite of that would be death or not knowing God, believing lies about him. Okay, I think that's well said. If, if eternal life is knowing God, then eternal death is not knowing God. So if, God, if Satan lies about God and we believe the lies, we're... And so think in your human relationships. You've got somebody you love and trust. And somebody comes to you and lies about them, tells you that they're cheating you, uh, they're stealing from you, they're cheating on you, they're out to hurt you, and it's all false, but you believe it. You believe this person is now out to hurt you. What, will something in your heart towards that person change? Will you trust them? No. You see, it severs, it breaks connection when you believe lies. Satan's power, the power of lies. So the little horn power sets itself up against the prince and the dragon fights against Michael, the prince. Do you notice they're both fighting the same war? They're both fighting against the prince. Question, how did they fight? What's this war? What are the weapons? How do they fight this war? Any Bible references come to mind? Words and ideas. Words and ideas, misrepresentations, lies. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against 
notice the knowledge of God, the focus, the knowledge of God, and take captive every thought. So they war against the knowledge of God by telling lies and misrepresenting. The little horn power takes away the daily sacrifice. What's the daily sacrifice? What is that? In the Old Testament, of course, there was a daily sacrifice that happened at the sanctuary. And this is, so it's, it's, it's drawing on that symbolism. So if we were to say the, the little horn power took away the Lamb of God, would we say, okay, no more sheep allowed in our, in our fields? No, we wouldn't be literal. We'd say, oh, he's, he's trying to take away Christ. We would see the symbolism immediately, right? And we'd interpret the symbolism immediately as taking away Jesus. Okay, well, he took away the daily sacrifice. What is the daily sacrifice? What is it? What was sacrificed daily? Yes, it's a symbol. The text says that it took away the daily. A sacrifice, of course, is added to it. Is Satan able to take away what Christ is doing in the sanctuary? I don't think that that is correct. Uh, let, I guess it depends. Put pause on that question because we're going to come next to uh, the question of the sanctuary. Okay? For, so let's, let's talk about this, this, this daily. It does say daily, and, and daily in the system was taking away the daily what? Continual. The continual, the continual what? That's what right. is Christ daily or continual? And, and that's right, in the Hebrew it can mean continual. He took away the continual. The continual what? As soon as man fell into sin in Eden, immediately, what was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing? Give me a word. Give me a description. What were they doing? Interceding. And, and how long have they been interceding since man fell into sin? Daily? Continuous. Continually? Ah. So what is Satan trying to take away? I would suggest you he's trying to take away the intercession of Christ. Now what is the intercession of Christ? Not just the intercession of Christ, the intercession of the Father, the intercession of the Spirit. How can he take that away? He can't. He can't. tells us to reject it. Oh. Will Christ intercede forever with people who persistently refuse it? No. Will he finally let them go? Yes. Yes. So he, he, he takes away the daily. And I'm going to suggest to you, he takes away the effective intercessions of Christ by what? What would be the method of doing that? If you were dying of a terminal condition and you needed daily you know, uh, uh, regimen of medicines to keep your disease, like HIV is a good example, they have to take a daily regimen of medicine every day, continually they have to take it to keep the, the, the uh, virus in, in remission. It's, it's suppressed. It's not, it's not expressing itself. And if they stop their antivirals, then the, the infection flames up and they get sick again. So it's a good, it's a good metaphor. If, if you're taking yours every day and your disease is well-controlled and somebody wants to take away your continual antivirals, your continual medicines, what would they need to do to get you to stop taking those? Convince you that it wasn't doing any good. Uh, convince you, several different strategies. Convince you what you're actually taking is poison and it's killing you. That's poison. That's killing you. Really? Oh, I shouldn't take it. Make it expensive. Make you afraid of the decision. Uh, make you afraid of the person who's prescribing. Oh, you know what? If you ever miss a dose, they're very, they're very exacting over there. Uh, they're they're, they're, they're going to give this to you, but if you miss a single dose, if you accidentally touch the ark, okay, if you miss a single dose, 
He'll kill you. Very exacting. You want to go back to that doctor? I'll take my chances with my disease. Thank you. You see, that's another one. How about offering you a false remedy? Hey, these work better. These work better. Take these instead. And, and they have no, no healing power in them at all. False gospels. False remedies. False theories that people take into their heart having false security while they continue to get worse. We won't go into it today, but I'll tell you, Eastern, Eastern philosophies are one of those. They bring a false peace. They don't change character. Yes. It seems like it all boils down to the fact that Satan tries to get you to distrust God. Yes, of course. It's always at the root. Always at the root. And the false plans, though, all the false plans will have a common outcome. Just like in real medicine. You take in a real remedy, it has a certain outcome. You take a fake remedy, it has a different outcome. You take the real remedy of Christ, it has a certain outcome. That you become like Christ in heart, mind, character, and ultimately eternal life. You take a fake remedy, you don't become like Christ. You get worse. The little horn power brought the... Now, this is where we're going to get some fun, I think. Little horn power brought the place of his sanctuary low. The dragon establishes the synagogue, or sanctuary of Satan. And what we read in our text here is the man of sin sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple? You know... uh, the historic view of this church has been, there was a prophecy, uh, Daniel 8.14, to 2300 years, the sanctuary would be cleansed. William Miller, of course, viewed that as the earth, predicted a second coming of Christ, and there's a great re- uh, re- uh, revival in, in North America. People preparing, and of course Christ didn't come, and they were disheartened and they went back and re-examined and discovered that the Bible does not teach the earth as a sanctuary. And then what was the conclusion next drawn? They get to that ultimate conclusion, but they first conclude something else, that the Bible teaches only two sanctuaries. One on earth built by man, Solomon's, and one in heaven built by God. Is that right? The Bible only teaches two? Or is there a third? Yes. Yeah, so let me give you some scripture. This is 1 Corinthians 3.16. What, um, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Ephesians two nineteen through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you who are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Second Peter 2, 4, starting at 4 through verse 10. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house 
to, a whole, to be a holy priesthood. I won't read the rest of that, but you get the point. And then Hebrews 3.6, But Christ is, faith, is a faithful son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold to our courage and hope of which we boast. I'm going to pause. Any questions so far about this? Because I'm sure this is going to cause some people discomfort. We haven't even got into half the evidence yet. Any questions so far? So what temple's been defiled? If we have to cleanse the temple, then the temple's been defiled. Think it through with me. It says in Thessalonians that sometime after Christ's death, after Christ's resurrection, after Christ's ascension into heaven, a man of sin is going to enter God's temple and and present himself as God. Do you think this man of sin went up into heaven and threw Christ out of his position in heaven and sat down there and proclaimed himself to be God? So, so Paul can't, can't be referring to the heavenly sanctuary, can he? He must be referring to something else. Put together, hope your computers are working. Wait a minute, we just talked about a war over the knowledge of God that's fought over ideas, thoughts, knowledge, pretensions. Where's that fought? In the mind. Yeah, we talked about the power that the little horn and the devil use. The power of what? Lies. Where do lies have their power? In the mind. Yes. Talked about setting aside Christ's intercessions. How does he do that? By getting us to do what? Distrust God. Yes. Well, listen to this. This is out of Desire of Ages, page 161. Thinking of the sanctuary. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson. What's an object lesson? A symbol, pointing to a greater reality. An object lesson, what do you think for? For the temple in heaven, right? An object lesson for Israel and the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. What, what purpose is fulfilled? What's the purpose? Become the temple of God. That humanity, a human being, now is again a temple for the dwelling of God. And that human being was? Christ. Jesus Christ was the, was, the, was the cornerstone upon which the house will be built. Jesus Christ became the conduit through which God again could dwell fully in humanity. Let's keep reading. The purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity. That's the purpose. God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. God designed that the temple of Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. Do you, do you experience that high destiny? Do you experience yourself as a dwelling place for God through his spirit? that you are a temple where he wants to live? But the Jews had not understood the significance of, building, of the building they regarded with so much pride. Could we say the Seventh-day Adventists have not appreciated, regarded, understood the significance of the building in, in heaven, which we regard this doctrine with so much pride? They did not yield themselves um, 
as holy temples for the divine spirit. The court of the temple of Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thought. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus was announcing his mission to pay our legal debt. No, listen to what it says. Jesus was announcing his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin. Wow, isn't that a much better deal? Hey, I get to be renewed. I get to be freed from all those things of fear and insecurity and selfishness and, and all those things that plague me all the time. I get to be cleansed from the... Uh, to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. And then she quotes Malachi. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. You're seeking him. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it will be opened up to you. Ask and it will be given to you, right? Seek. The Lord who you seek will come to his... Which, where's he coming? To your heart. He's coming to your heart. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant who you delight. Uh, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now get this. He shall purify the Levites and per- make them like gold and silver. So what's going to be cleansed? An inanimate building in heaven made out of gold and silver, inanimate materials in heaven, or the, the sons of Levi, the priesthood of believers. The sons of Levi, priesthood of believers, are going to be cleansed. Their hearts and minds are going to be purified. The cleansing of the temple. Yes? We're talking about the, the Antichrist. Yes. Where he's reigning, and that the, the temple is truly our hearts and minds. It's the same thing if you go over to 1 John 2. If you go to 1 John 2, 21, I'm writing to you because you know the truth, not because you don't know the truth. You know that no lie ever comes from the truth. Who is a liar? Who else but the person who rejects Jesus as the Messiah? The person who rejects the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Everyone who rejects the Son doesn't have the Father either. The person who acknowledges the Son also has the Father. Make sure that the message you heard from the beginning lives in you. Well said. If that message lives in you, then you will also live in the Son and in the Father. Did, did you hear the same message through there? Yeah. What, did you have comments you want to make about that passage? It's the same explanation of who the Antichrist is, where he lives, and what our part is in living in God. And, and, and we're going to break it down even more in just a moment. Yes. The food was all from Desire of Ages. That was Desire of Ages 161. 161. So what temple do you hear being described in the John passage, in the Desire of Ages passage, in the scriptures that I read before? What temple? Human heart. And what defiles the soul temple? Lies. Lies about God that, we be- that Adam and Eve believed first. That's where it first got defiled. Then the evil, lustful habit patterns and sinful choices we make defiles us more. And then the further lies that we believe about God that, well, because you've broken the rules, he's an angry God, he's wrathful, he's got to punish you, he must be appeased. All these other lies that make us more afraid of him defiles us even further. And if those persistent lies about God are not removed by the truth that Jesus has brought, then Satan's principles of selfishness continue to grow. The earthly desires of selfish lust, the evil habits get stronger, and these destructive elements strengthen within, and instead of Christ-like character developing, we develop 
the character of the rebel, the satanic character. We become a synagogue of Satan. And the soul, the individual created with dignity, nobility of character in God's image to represent him to the onlooking universe, the, the being designed for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit becomes instead a, a, a sanctuary where, where Satan dwells and his character is revealed. A habitation of, de- of devils and demons. So what is the Antichrist trying to achieve? What's his goal? What's his, what's his it's agenda? Does he want to sit in a building, an inanimate building made out of inanimate material somewhere in the cosmos? No. You really think that if Satan went into heaven, into the heavenly sanctuary, and walked in and said, wow, Lord, I love what you've done with this place. It's got the most amazing chandeliers. And look at that inlaid gold. And look at the artwork. I mean, these ceilings are, are two miles high. I mean, this is amazing. Uh, Lord, uh, you wouldn't mind if I had, had this building, would you? <laughs> now, the, the, the Lord we know revealed in Jesus, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself to become the form of a man all the way down to death. What would he have said about an inanimate building? It's yours. Have it. If it makes you happy. I'll make another one. Oh, there it is, in fact. Right? Yeah, do you think Satan ever wanted to sit in a building? Where does he want to sit enthroned? He wants to control the human race. Into the, not just the human race. He wants to sit enthroned into the heart and mind of all intelligence throughout the universe as the one most loved, adored, admired, and trusted. He wants to turn our allegiance from God to him to be the leader of, the, of, of um, intelligence throughout the universe. So he wants to corrupt your spirit temple by getting you to look like him. Trying to make us selfish, arrogant, mean, unkind, cruel, exploitive of others, gossip, slanderers, unloving, impatient, and all the other things you see described. Why? Because we look like him. Now, continuing to think about Antichrist, this is uh, from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 125, one of the founders of our church. See if this takes, a, takes you another place. Uh, Christ is the only true standard of character. Anybody disagree with that? No. And he who sets himself up as a standard for others is putting himself in the place of Christ. And since the Father has committed all judgment to Son, whoever presumes to judge the motives of others is again usurping the prerogatives of the Son of God. This would be These would-be judges and critics are placing themselves on the side of Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above everything that is called God and is worshipped. So he sits in God's temple, showing himself to be God, quoting, of course, the Second Thessalonians text. The sin that leads to the most unhappy results is the cold, critical, unforgiving spirit that characterized Phariseeism. When the religion, religious experience is devoid of love, Jesus is not there. When men indulge this accusing spirit, they are not satisfied with pointing out what they suppose to be a deceit in their, a a defect in their brother. If milder means fail of making him do what they think ought to be done, they will resort to compulsion. Just as far as as lies in their power, they will force men to comply with their ideas of what is right. This is what the Jews did in the days of Christ and what the church has done since whenever she has lost the grace of Christ. Finding herself destitute of the power of love, she reaches out through the strong arm of the state to enforce her dogmas and execute her decrees. 
Here is the secret of all religious laws that have ever been enacted and the secret of all persecution from the days of Abel to our own time. Christ does not drive men, but draws men unto himself. The only compulsion which he employs is the constraint of love. When the church begins to seek the support of secular power, it is evident that she is devoid of the power of Christ, the constraint of divine love. Mount, Mount of Blessings 127. So, do you agree or disagree? Because now we're getting down to, remember, we have now the character of God, the law of love, how he built his universe to run. We have the character of the evil one, selfish, uh, exploitive of others. And now we get down to methodologies and how they practice. What method does the Antichrist use? What are his methods? This is how we will know the Antichrist, by the methods employed. Coercive pressure and force. What's it say about those who won't worship the beast? They can neither buy nor sell. What, what kind of methodology is that? It's coercive pressure. It's economic, it's sanctions. United Nations sanctions. We will put sanctions against them and they can't buy or sell unless they do it our way. Yes. That's a, a last resort mm-hmm. versus deceit, flattery. That's correct. Um, threats. And social pressure. Social pressure. And then in the end, if none of those are successful, then it's coercive force. And, and, and let's, give, let's give an example of that. Christ, our example, in the wilderness was tempted originally by flattery and inducements. If you're the son of God, do this and show me. I, I would worship you. Flattery. Um, or I would give you all of these cities and powers and lands and countries if you just worship me. Uh, bribery, inducements, when he wouldn't go three and a half years. And then, and then there was the subtle trickeries that were attempted through his human agents through the three and a half year ministry, and he still couldn't be tripped up. And then it got down to, okay, let's, let's pull out what we really believe now. We're going we're gonna to kill him. We're going to kill him. Yeah. Good. Yes, oh. I think also fear, and more specifically, fear of the first death. Fear of the what? Of the first death. Oh, fear of the first death. Yeah, fear of the first death. Tim? Yes. A lot of people read the Old Testament and see a coercive God. What would you say about that? Um, I would say they read the Old Testament and see a coercive God because they've already accepted the, the um, counterattack of the man of sin. After Christ died and ascended to heaven, the gospel message is going forward. Paul's telling us in Thessalonians that the man of sin is going to arise and he's going to set himself up at God's temple. He's going to counter what Christ has done and present a false remedy out there, a false construct. And what countered, what happened was God's law got exchanged for a human governmental construct where God imposes law like a human government imposes law. And once you've accepted that God operates this way, then when you read the Old Testament, then you see him as a punisher, the imposer of punishments. Okay, If you actually hold to God's law as the design template upon which life is built, and he is operating just like doctors do, because doctors only heal in harmony with the laws of health. They don't heal by violating the laws of health. The only things get worse if you do that. No matter what the interventions are, they're moving persons, if they're getting well, in harmony with the way God built life to run. So... Um, if we, if we look at the Old Testament and view it through that lens, then we see God is intervening at times maybe to cut off a gangrenous foot to save something larger. Uh, sometimes he might be um, cauterizing a wound to stop the hemorrhaging. 
Um, he might be inducing vomiting to, to uh, save uh, a poison going on. So you see his interventions going there. These, these are remedial actions and designed to save and heal, not designed to punish and destroy. So it really depends on the lens that you're looking through it with. And so you, I find it's, it, if you go without dealing with the lens first, people don't understand what you're talking about. Uh, you don't, they, they think you're nuts. They think you're a loose liberal. Because, they, because if, you, if you believe God imposes law, like a Roman emperor, and then you believe God isn't imposing penalties, then you have just created a universe without justice. If it was true that God imposed law, then he has to impose punishment or else there's no justice in this universe. And that's why they can't give it up because they harbor a, a false uh, law construct. Ultimately, they har- harbor a false construct of God's character. Um, <clears throat> so given all that we've read, do you look around the world today and do you find any religions or religious people devoid of love and grace and seeking the strong arm of the law to enforce its rules? Do you see it happening? We can see it happening very, very strongly in certain Islamic countries. Very strongly there. There's certain societies, certain cities in our country in the U.S. are trying to do this. Kansas, someplace in Kansas, near outskirts of Chicago, there's a strong Islamic groups that are trying to get um, their laws passed. What about Christians? Do you see Christians doing this? Yes. Where do you see Christians doing this in, in, in our country? Laws, laws for Sunday, Sunday sacredness? Laws against abortion? We, why don't we convert people to believe with love? Why do we need to use laws to coerce people to do it our way? Various lawsuits in the court system. Yeah, but why do we have to go to the courts? Why don't we just convert? Uh, did, did, did Christ and the apostles go to the courts of Rome to get, and did they, did they get, become political and get new, petition for new governors, to get new senators elected, to, to, uh, to get new laws passed? Did they, did, they, did they use that system? Or did they go to the people with a message that converted hearts and it turned the world upside down? The mission of the church is to convert hearts with this message, this message of love. Given all that we've read, Daniel 8, 14, 2,200 years, the sanctuary will be cleansed. What is it referring to? What's going to be cleansed? I heard you say it. There's a lot of mumbles, so I'll say it so those listening can hear it. You, you, you said, and I agree with you, the cleansing of our hearts and minds. Cleansing of our characters, our hearts and minds from the lies of Satan, our characters from the methods of Satan, cleansing of people ready to meet Christ when he comes. Now listen to this, and you might want to write this reference down because it will come in handy dealing with certain you know, historical um, incalcitrant minds that we sometimes come across. It's not in the notes. It's in the notes. It's in the notes if you get my notes off, this, off the thing. This is third manuscript release, page 231. The first tab, and this is for those who insist it's, it's a little, you know, little smoky room in heaven where incense is burning when we pray, uh, and Christ is pleading with that incense to the Father. And then records are being reviewed and, and things are being stamped by our books in heaven. For that group, <clears throat> third manuscript release 231. The first tabernacle built according to God's direction was indeed blessed by him. The people thus were, prepare, uh, were preparing themselves to worship in the temple, preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with hands, a temple in the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at a quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to this house, all prepared for use. 
Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world, where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers, and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed, and we must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. In view of this, we must see that our temple is not defiled with sin. We should be living stones, not dead ones, but live ones that will reflect the image of Christ. We must be worshipers in spirit and truth. What do you hear the heavenly temples built out of? built out of people. There's so many references to support this, so many references in scripture to support this, but the, the, the heavenly temple, somebody says, you know, and I've had people, after I presented this, they'll come up, somebody in this audience might still do it today, come up to me and say, so you don't believe there's a temple in heaven, do you? And I say, of course I do. Let me ask you a question. Tell me what the, heaven, the heavenly sanctuary is constructed out of. When you can answer that question, then you know what Christ is doing. And I'm going to tell you, it's constructed out of living beings. And thus, the cleansing of the temple is achieved through the cleansing of the hearts and minds of his people. It's a work done in you. And if you want your records in heaven to be cleansed, the records in heaven are just a perfect reflection of your character. So the only way your records get cleansed is for you to experience cleansing of character here. And then you can explain why 2300 days get cleansed. Yes, that's a, does that confuse anybody? That was a straightforward process. Paul, Paul gives us the evidence for it in 2 Thessalonians. After Christ's victory at, at Calvary, the man of sin would arise, that man of perdition who would set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. There's a counterattack coming. The devil's going to throw all kinds of lies and distortions and, and man is going to incorporate those into our minds and hearts. The Satan's view is going to be established in the temple of God. And so the prophecy of Daniel says it will be 2,300 years before enough truth is recovered to cleanse the sanctuary. So that's why it just took that long for the truth to be recovered. Because God doesn't work by force and he doesn't program us like robots. All this healing and transforming process that happens within us happens by our free will participation. And it took that long for enough humans to be willing to actually embrace and incorporate the truth into their lives and start taking a message to the world. Many, this is out of 7 Bible Commentary 950, many exalt human reason, idealize wisdom, and set the opinions of men above the revealed wisdom of God. This affords opportunity for the working of Satan and the spirit of Antichrist is far more widespread than any of us imagine. The maxims of the world that know not God have been worked into the theories of the church. In the eyes of men, vain philosophies and science, falsely so-called, are of more value than the word of God. The sentiment prevails to a large extent that the divine mediator is not essential to the salvation of man. A variety of theories advanced by so-called worldly wise men for man's salvation are believed and trusted in more than is the truth of God as taught by Christ and his apostles. 
So, Antichrist. Again, she's basically the process being described is lies, false remedies that we talked about, uh, gospels that are not true gospels being presented, and these are coming from worldly wisdom, human wisdom that disregards scripture. Any of those theories you want to throw out that might be floating around that are duping people? Evolution. Evolution. You know, we had a little encounter with that this week. <laughs> Anybody see the video? A few of you did? Yeah. Yes. And there's this uh, premise in the world that if you believe in creation, that you're ignorant. If you believe in creation, you don't know how to think. You don't know how to reason. You don't know how to look at evidence. That any enlightened person would realize that there is, that any enlightened person would realize that everything came from nothing. That chaos leads to complexity and order without intelligent design or intelligent input. And that life comes from non-life. Any intelligent person would know this. And I would say, show me the evidence. You're scientific. Science requires reproducible evidence. I can show you lots of reproducible evidence that life comes from life. Every one of us came from a living being. The whole planet is filled with life coming from life. There isn't one piece of evidence anywhere of life coming from non-life, but that's the theory. Or I can show you all kinds of evidence of complexity coming from chaos with intelligent input. All the technology we have. Intelligent input creating complexity. You can't show me one piece of evidence where something complex came from chaos without intelligent input. I mean, if it's so obvious, show it to me. Can't be done. Yes. If you read the responses to the multiple videos that were online, but I, the original I, was yours as others. I've restrained myself. <laughs> there was no thought. There was no openness to an acceptance of an idea. There was no clear acceptance that there was a discussion. It was all a closed mind. A, a verbal attack. Right. Yeah, and, 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 and this is actually in my book, Could It Be This Simple? Uh, in one of the chapters, I, I, I talk about things that are done um, uh, within the church that injure the mind. And one of those are believing without evidence. It's one of the things that are done. Just take that on faith, believe without evidence. And then I give a list of things that are evidences of people doing this. And one of the evidence of people believing without evidence is that when an idea is challenged, they get angry and hostile. Because they don't know why they believe it, they just believe it, and they can't refute the evidence being presented. But if you're a person who's a lover of truth, you take the position that hopefully we all do, that we're finite, meaning we have a finite amount of understanding and knowledge and facts. God is infinite, which means the gap between us is infinite. So we are open to modifying our understanding with new data, with new facts, with new evidence. So we want to be, as it says in the Thessalonians text, we want to be lovers of the truth, not those who don't love the truth. Okay? So if somebody challenges your ideas, you, you don't have to be angry or upset. You say, can you show me the evidence? Help me see how that fits. Give me an understanding of that. And then you ask questions that will clarify and you, and you compare it with, with other evidences. And this is how, how we, we process through. But we don't have to get angry. It's like, no, I don't believe that because... Da-da-da-da. And I've given you some small examples. There's, in, in, the, in the little video I did, uh, I, I referenced the idea of genetics. I, I again, recommend the book uh, Genetic Entropy by Sanford, a Cornell uh, professor, applied geneticist, who has done a great job in his book of, of just laying out the, the current documentable, reproducible, accepted scientific facts about our genome, which is 
that every generation has a minimum of 300 to 1,000 new damaging mutations that the, that the generation before did not have. And, and, and selection occurs in this process of natural selection. It occurs, but it cannot occur at a sufficient rate to, to pull out the damaging mutations, number one. It'd be like a, a ship sinking, and it's filling with water, and you're bailing with a thimble. Yes, you are bailing, and selection is happening, but it's happening at such a minor rate, it's not actually changing the, the ultimate course of, the, of humanity, which is deteriorating, not evolving, number one. It's all well documented. Number two, there's never been one documentable mutation that has actually advanced a species. Never been, never been shown. It's all theoretical. They, say, they claim it, but they don't show it. The one example they give is sickle cell, the sickle cell gene mutation as if that advances a species. Think it through. It's supposed to cause a, fe- a species to become healthier, stronger, and advanced, not just survive a plague. Okay? If you get that mutation, you may survive malaria. But if it was really a mutation that would cause, cause a species to advance, shouldn't the mutation have given such a strong immune system that it would just knock out the infection to start with and you wouldn't have any sex? You'd be stronger. You're healthier. It's not. You've lost capacity to make hemoglobin. You haven't gotten stronger hemoglobin. It's a, it's, a, it's a grand deception. It's, it's, it's like the emperor's clothes. He's naked. The emperor evolution is naked. Um, no, that's not in the notes, no. That's my, that's my little soapbox. <laughs> and, then, and then we're talking about these theories that are man-made that come into Christianity, and many Christian churches teach evolution now. But there's another one. I'm going to tell you the other one, and it's one we've been harping on for quite some time, penal substitutionary atonement. It's man-made. The whole basis of it is based on a governmental world design and logic, imposed law construct based off of human government constructs. Um, and, and, and under this, this construct leads to the, the justified use of coercive power. When you operate under this, sin has to be punished. We must punish sin or we're not just. And so we have to use coercive power. And God will come and must use coercive power because justice requires it. And so it leads us to actually embracing the idea that when the, the false Messiah comes and speaks his melodious words, when the Antichrist shows up, does his miracle, speaks melodiously, say, I want to save you all, but, you know, if you continue to rebel, justice requires that I punish you. And half, nine out of ten people in the world are going to go, amen, amen. I can't have an unjust universe. I have to punish sin. Please, con- please confess, repent to me, worship me, and I won't have to punish you. Otherwise, I'll have to punish you. That was last week's lesson. Like, that was last week's lesson. And it's a lie. This is man-made. God, imagine your doctor saying, hey, look, if you don't stop smoking, I'm going to have to punish you. I'm going to have to kill you if you don't stop. It's stupid. It's ludicrous. You walk in, you walk in. Okay, let's, let, you walk in and somebody... Maybe he's a stranger. We won't, even, we won't even bring in your love for a family member. We'll just, a stranger, you walk in and a stranger has just five seconds before stepped off a, 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 a chair and are dangling from a rope, hanging themselves. So they're not dead yet. But now they are breaking the law of respiration. Are they not? They're breaking the law. They are lawbreakers. They are lawless. What will justice require you to do? You should pull out a gun and shoot them for being rebellious, shouldn't you? (laughs) 
what would the law, what does justice require? Doesn't, wouldn't every one of you immediately go grab them and pick them up and pull the rope off the neck? I mean, justice requires you what? Save them. To put them back in harmony with the law. When you understand God's law is how he built life to run, then God's justice is always seeking to save and restore and put back in harmony. When you have God's law as a breaking of the rules, then, well, you broke the law, I've got to punish you. I've got to kill you. And if I let you die before I kill you, well, then justice didn't get served. Say, so God has to actually make you suffer before, before he kills you. It's all twisted, yes. What kills me is that another lie is that God artificially keeps you alive so that you can burn eternally while you're being punished. Yeah, that's what I was meaning. That's what I was alluding to. Thank you for spelling that out. Artificially keeping you alive, naturally you would not live. So God has to keep you alive in order to torture you for the rest of eternity. Because justice requires that punishment. That's the point. When you have that false construct, it leads to these horrible things. And this is how the, the Antichrist establishes himself in the temple and holds the temple, but the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell, remember, gates are defensive. He's established, and now he's trying to hold with defensive. But the truth will set you free. We have been, we have been gifted with truth about God's kingdom, about God's character, about God's law, and he is wanting us to go out there and take this to, to completely demolish the gates, and the gates are the lies that hold people's minds. And we want to demolish those gates and set some minds free. We didn't get through any more. In fact, we didn't even make it to to the first day of the lesson, but <laughs> our, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, uh, that you are exactly as Jesus revealed, that you have created your universe to operate in harmony with your beautiful character of love, that you've given us real freedom, that you've invited us to participate voluntarily in your kingdom. And we choose that, Lord. We open our hearts, we invite you in, we ask that you will search and find any wicked way in us, and that you will cleanse your temple cleanse our hearts, cleanse our minds, remove the lies, remove the, the, the lustful passions, remove the confused thoughts, uh, establish and write your law of love on the tablets of our hearts and minds. And allow us to be lights in this world. Give us uh, capacities and abilities to connect the picture together so that we can communicate effectively because there's so many that long to know you, but they're scared. They've been taught lies and they live in fear of you. Give us the ability to set them free, Lord, with the truth from your kingdom. And pray that you will open avenues for, for this message to go forward. Bless this ministry. Bless those, our friends around the world who are also sharing this message. Uh, we know that the devil is trying to shut down every possible avenue, but open the avenues that this message may go forward. I pray you'll bless Dr. Markham and, uh, and his, uh, his, his television ministry, that uh, networks will pick this up and, and doors will open, that this message might, might be heard around the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.